Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Maybe you've noticed, but American healthcare is a complex public-private mess. Over the last 10 years, a new force has emerged, private equity. Companies like Blackstone and KKR take money from pension funds and the globe's big money and use it to make leveraged buyouts of hundreds of healthcare companies a year. From 2009 to 2019, they've cut deals worth $750 billion. And many critics say they're hurting patients and driving up healthcare costs. And all that was before the pandemic wreaked havoc on our hospitals, doctors, and nurses. We're going to talk Wall Street's increasingly direct influence on the care you receive. That's next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Berkeley health economics professor Richard Scheffler has spent years studying the newish and growing role of private equity firms in healthcare. His conclusion about their impact is stark, as he put it in a paper The private equity business model is fundamentally incompatible with sound healthcare that serves patients. Welcome to the show, Professor Scheffler. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Gretchen Morganson is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, now a senior financial reporter at NBC News. She's sunk her teeth into private equities, acquisitions, and healthcare, and the effects that's had during the pandemic. Recently, for example, she dug into how dermatology has been changed by private equity buyouts. Thanks for joining us, Gretchen. Anytime. Happy to be here. So, Gretchen, let's start with you. How did you get interested in this? I mean, you've been a Wall Street reporter for a long time. What were the stories that kind of drew your eye over to this healthcare private equity nexus? Well, I've covered private equity from the standpoint of um, investors, how pensions have really dived very deeply into into the um, asset class, how it has, um, you know, hurt workers uh, around the country. As you know, private equity is a type of a strategy in which um, companies buy other companies, financiers buy other companies. They try to streamline them. They try to increase their efficiencies and then try to sell them in a very short time. So this is not the kind of strategy that is a long-term building process. It's a quick in, quick out, hopefully with a profit. And so I've covered that for many, many years, but it really was during the pandemic that I started to really look into the impacts on healthcare that some of these buyouts have had, because of course, 
the pandemic was a healthcare crisis and you immediately started to see the impact that some of the uh, private equity firms were having in say the emergency medicine departments across the country and in you know dispensing of PPE. So it really became starkly, starkly obvious that private equity and healthcare could be a dangerous mix. Yeah. Want to note, too, we invited the companies KKR, Envision, Team Health, and Industry Group's Healthcare Private Equity Association and the American Investment Council. None of them wanted to come on today, though they invited us, at least in some cases, to read from their websites. Uh, Gretchen uh, Morganson, you know, when we look at a private equity firm going in and buying some healthcare uh, organization, could you walk us through what happens? Like, what's different from when they do it versus from when, say, you know, just a, a hospital buys a smaller outfit? Well, the first thing that's really important to note is the amounts of debt that are typically taken on by private equity firms to complete their acquisitions. Okay, so, you know, traditionally when a buyer, a strategic buyer, a company that is already in the industry buys another, they don't take on quite the amount of debt that private equity companies do. And this is important because the heavy debt loads really create a problem for the companies if they are not able to become immensely profitable or more profitable quickly. They have to pay their interest expense, which goes up a lot after a private equity buyout. Often they have to pay to the private equity firms for things called monitoring charges where they are managing the operation. So increased costs associated with the buyout is an immediate um, problem for many of the companies that are purchased by these entities. So what happens? Well, what do you do when you have higher costs such as debt costs? Well, you look to reduce costs elsewhere. And what often happens is the first thing to get cut are uh, employees, benefits, hours, wages. And so that has a real impact on companies that are taken over. Yeah. We've even seen this in newspapers, right? They can be in the black on operations, but when they get to all the line items, they're in the red at the end of the day, largely because of the, the debt service. Uh, Professor Scheffler, you know, you've been studying healthcare markets for a long time. Can you tell us about the entrance of private equity into this space? Like what brought them into healthcare? What brought them into healthcare was uh, a lot of money <laughs> floating around <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what I'd call regulatory cracks. Uh, whenever the government spends money, uh, most recently in the pandemic, it spent, of course, a lot of uh, federal money. It puts out rules and regulations for spending the money. And there have been, of course, appropriately billions of dollars poured into the healthcare system to deal with the pandemic. Uh, uh, but in general, the healthcare sector has been growing, as we know, and it's 
pretty close to uh, 20% uh, of all spending in the economy just under that is in healthcare. So uh, quite frankly, it's all about money. And um, you cited a figure uh, from my report that mm -hmm. last decade, uh, 750 billion, but uh, also of interest uh, is the rate of increase. Uh, so at the beginning of that period, it was about 40 billion yearly, and by the end of, in 2019, it was 120 billion. So uh, you know a three-time increase. So it is uh, skyrocketing, increasing at an increasing rate. And uh, I expect, and I've been doing um, a more recent study of this, that this rate of increase is not slowing at all, but in fact, uh, dramatically increasing. So it has now become a major fourth, and uh, I would say an existential threat to the functioning of uh, the, the delivery of healthcare in the United States. You know, the way I read your work, it seems like the private equity entrance has merged with this broader trend in healthcare markets towards consolidation uh, mm. in local healthcare markets. Can you give us a sense of the scale of that consolidation that's been occurring sort of alongside and with the help of a uh, private equity firm? Well, sure. I mean, consolidation has been uh, dramatic in our healthcare sector now. Uh, most of our healthcare markets now are uh, considered by the Department of Justice uh, Federal Trade Commission to be uh, heavily concentrated markets, which means uh, there isn't much competition and uh, hospitals pretty much have their way. Uh, this is also true in the insurance industry uh, and in certain physician markets. But to give you a bigger picture, it's not only healthcare consolidation, but there's been consolidation in the entire economy. Um, that's why President Biden has a task force, high level uh, task force uh, working on consolidation in the economy. And of course, healthcare is the, among the most uh, uh, consolidated uh, of all the industries. And this consolidation, uh, uh, has repeatedly uh, found to increase healthcare prices. And of course, these end up uh, increasing the premiums that workers have to pay uh, for health insurance. What, uh, what private equity does uh, is to, uh, has entered this and uh, has um, pushed consolidation even further, but it has uh, supercharged it in, in a variety of ways. Um, Gretchen uh, pointed this out in her uh, in her comments, which uh, very nicely laid on laid out uh, what private equity is all about. And it's to supercharge to make money. <laughs> uh, they when they buy a practice or a nursing home or a hospital or. Uh, large physician practices, they want to turn them around in three to five years and then resell them in the market and make a huge profit. So uh, this kind of supercharged profit motive exacerbates uh, the impact uh, on these already concentrated markets. So you're an economist, and I would imagine that the argument for private equity, 
uh, coming into some of these places is that they could increase the efficiency of the operations of these various uh, fragmented healthcare services. Has that been borne out? Uh, it's an important point, and uh, that is uh, the argument that private equity uh, firms use. And uh, in many other industries, uh, uh, this might be the case. Uh, and in a few parts of the healthcare sector, it might be the case. So uh, there's been big private equity deals in buying uh, uh, medical records or claims uh, systems that various uh, large healthcare systems use, it's possible uh, they could have some technological uh, help and advances to do that better. And there are certain, uh, you know, financial things that they might have some expertise um, in buying the practice and helping it along. But uh, these have been very infrequent and very rare, and one can find very few examples. What you find more on the other side is when they take over a practice and buy it, the quality of care delivered to the patient uh, dramatically decreases. Uh, the best evidence so far has been in the nursing home industry where uh, very good studies have documented the increases in deaths by the elderly population in nursing homes uh, after they have been taken over by uh, private equity firms. Uh, this is so serious now that there are discussions in Washington uh, uh, and people discussing a bill to uh, not allow private equity firms at all to buy into the nursing home uh, industry. Uh, you can see especially why, because uh, uh, the population there is very, very vulnerable. Yeah. We're talking about the explosive growth of private equity investing in healthcare and what it means for patients with Richard Scheffler, professor of health economics at UC Berkeley, where he teaches in the schools of public health and public policy. He's also a member of Governor Newsom's Healthy California for All Commission. We're also joined by Gretchen Morganson, a senior financial reporter at NBC News Investigations. You can find her excellent reporting at NBCNews.com. She was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 2002 for her coverage of Wall Street. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the explosive growth of private equity 
investing in healthcare and what that means for patients. We're joined by Gretchen Morganson, senior financial reporter at NBC News Investigations. You can find her work at NBCNews.com, as well as Richard Scheffler, professor of health economics at UC Berkeley, where he teaches in the schools of public health and public policy. And we really want to hear from you. I, you know, we're hearing what it's like for from the outside, in the abstract, what it's like for a private equity firm to take over a doctor's office or a hospital. But are you a doctor or other medical professional who has experience with private equity? I mean, me personally, I want to know someone who sold their practice to a private equity firm or considered it. Why'd you say yes? Why'd you say no? I know that this is it's complex. So give us a call. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, of course. Or you can email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. Gretchen Morganson, I want to know which kind of healthcare operations have private equity firms targeted? Or has it pretty much been across the board? Or are there like specific subfields or specialties or kinds of uh, service that have they've preferred? Yes, they have um, gone very aggressively into emergency medicine. They've also um, done a lot of what we call roll-ups of um, dermatology practices, anesthesiology, um, it's really, as Richard said earlier, it's really about where the money is. And so, you know, you also have seen a lot in rural hospitals, for example, and you might think, wow, a rural hospital is not really going to be a, uh, a profit center, but right. because rural hospitals are the only, you know, uh, entities for a long, you know, distances around them, they do get some, you know, benefits for higher pricing on Medicare. So it's where the money is, that's really all you need to know. And so you have seen it in these kinds of practices where that are quite lucrative. Yeah. I mean, the old model for a doctor's office kind of model that had obtained for a long time was that a doctor, a group of doctors kind of owned their practice. But you, in one of your stories, uh, you cited the American Medical Association that reported that 2018 was the first year in which more physicians were employees, 47.4%, than owners of their practices. And I just wanted to get a sense of like how this change happened, because I thought it was actually the law that, that corporations couldn't uh, practice medicine. So like, tell us about some of that kind of legal gray area there. You know, it's such a great point, an important point to make. Um, okay, so yes, there are laws on the books in many, many states, you know, around 30, that prevent, that bar the so-called corporate practice of medicine. Um, this was for obvious reasons. Um, and it really grew out of, you know, kind of ancient history when there were, you know, a lot of quack doctors around. But it really has become... Um, a, a sort of the, the, the law of choice, but unfortunately, these laws are rarely enforced. Um, certainly recently, they haven't been. So these companies are able to, um, uh, the, through a sort of technical ownership status, they're able to um, claim that they're they're not practicing medicine by having a doctor or doctors stand in as the owner 
of the practice or the owner of the LLC or the professional association that is supposedly doing the work. But in some cases uh, where there has been litigation, we have seen that the doctors who are supposedly overseeing these efforts really don't have anything to do with them. It is really that the private equity backed company is in charge. So it's been a technical way. Uh, they're sort of management associations or management organizations that they set up to get around the problem of the corporate practice of medicine. But the result really is the same. These are, you know, companies that are overseeing, actually doing um, medicine. Right. I mean, it really, it, it recalls early Uber. <laughs> you know? I mean, it really does. <laughs> um, let's add a doctor into our conversation here. Mitchell Lewis Judge Lee, practicing emergency physician and co-founder of Take Medicine Back, in advocacy group which seeks to remove private equity in healthcare. Welcome, Dr. Lee. Thanks for having me. So your concerns with private equity started when you were a medical resident working in an ER department. What what happened? Yeah, so I actually started residency under, uh, as you mentioned, groups that were previously owned by physicians. This would be what we would call a democratic and name only group. Uh, I was, of course, as a resident, was an employee of the hospital, but the attending physicians that were training us were part of what sounded to be a democratic group. However, only two of the, I think is about 70 physicians actually had ownership. They called everyone else partners, but they didn't really have transparency and they didn't have any uh, decision-making real power. So while I was there, they actually sold to Team Health. So this was around 2014, 2017, and I think it's 2016 that Team Health was acquired in full by Blackstone. I gra- graduated residency in- Blackstone being a huge private equity firm for those who aren't familiar. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I think probably the largest. And at that time, I was still a bit distracted by just learning medicine. I didn't really have the bandwidth to figure out what was going on, but I heard a lot of rumblings among the attendings that they weren't too happy. Um, But what I saw was an increased focus on metrics, and these are kind of meaningless metrics, but metrics that might improve the bottom line. Uh, And the chair of the department honestly looked like he was just afraid for his job every day. And our lectures would be interrupted with pleas from him uh, to, you know, improve metrics or spend extra time on top of the time training and residency to do patient callbacks and things that Team Health, the company, wanted us to do. So as mentioned, these the about three to five year uh, turnovers for for private equity, um, they were just getting started when I left residency. Um, At that point, I graduated residency with about $350,000 of educational debt. And I forewent uh, uh, doing a fellowship because I just needed to start paying back my loans. And this is a situation that uh, is not unique. So I started lurking into personal finance just to figure out how I could not fall into the stereotype of a physician who manages money poorly. Um, and kept my expenses down and worked on paying off my loans. And while I was researching personal finance is when I came across, you know, what was really going on with private equity in emergency medicine um, and medicine in general. And I also discovered something called direct primary care, which I won't go into too far, except just to mention that I realized that lab tests are only $30 uh, for your annual labs when you don't use insurance. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors 
in the medical system. Yeah, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Scheffler, what has been going on with private equity and emergency staffing? Well, emergency medicine has become uh, uh, quite profitable now because of COVID. A lot of people ending up in the emergency room and there's been a shortage, uh, as the doctor knows, of emergency physicians and emergency rooms. So this has become a big uh, profit center. Um, what's really going on, uh, importantly, uh, brought out by both of my colleagues is uh, this fundamentally uh, attacks the, the patient uh, relationship with the doctor, mm. which is based on trust. Uh, we need to trust our doctors to have our health care as their number one interest. And when you supercharge profits by a private equity firm, this has the uh, serious uh, ability to, to undermine that trust. And without that, you can't have really good medical care uh, and patients uh, uh, are asked to uh, take tests, have services, that they may not need in order to meet the goals of the private equity firm uh, and the bottom line and the debt. This is very, very serious. And this is fundamentally why I think private equity really doesn't fit the healthcare system. It might have an important role in other parts of the economy, but here it is really a threat. Can you imagine uh, going to your doctor's office that you have uh, used uh, for 20 years? And uh, last year, he or she sold the practice out to a private equity firm. Uh, the prices they get, by the way, are roughly a million and a half to $2 million per doctor. Hmm. Uh, and you get that money up, up front, uh, you practice for a year or two, and then it's sold. And in some of these deals, the doctors actually maintain some of the equity in the firm, maybe 20%. So when it's sold, they not only got their one and a half, two million dollars for doctor, but they would get part of the, part of the profits. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, that practice is now saying, how about another CAT scan? Uh, <laughs> how about another, uh, uh, you know, test to see if you have X, Y, and Z? And, um, and some of these uh, tests can be actually quite harmful. But you can see the pressure on the practice and how it's tipped the relationships. And uh, the amazing thing about it is, uh, as the doctor pointed out, he didn't know, but the patients don't know. Right. And all of a sudden, the practice is owned by private equity, uh, Blackstone and other groups. Um, and there is no uh, law that says they have to be notified and told about this. But imagine how you might feel as a patient knowing that your doctor is now owned by a private equity firm that's interested in flipping 
the practice in three to five years to make an enormous amount of money and is not set up primarily to treat you as a patient in the long run. Yeah. You can see how that really doesn't make sense uh, in the healthcare market. Yeah. Dr. Lee, you know, Team Health, one of the big players, defended itself against these kinds of charges in October, saying it, quote, regularly adjusts staffing levels to reflect patient needs and the facilities we serve, maintaining the levels above anticipated patient numbers, basically saying, you know, we're just we're just managing the business in a in a solid way. Um, What do you what do you think about their um, responses to the kinds of accusations that people make about the way they're running their organizations? I think these uh, these decisions uh, actually should be made by the physicians owning the practice and not a firm that's driven by the profit motives. Uh, doctors have a sense if they need more nurses or what kind of equipment they need and what a proper test is. And when they're pressured by an outside group to change these, I think that does cross the line into affecting the quality of care and the practice of medicine. Uh, and so I have no doubt that they can uh, do much better raising money. They understand the credit markets a lot better than physicians do. When it gets down to the delivery of care and, and uh, patient outcomes and the health of you and your family, uh, I think it is threatened seriously uh, yeah. by the intense profit motive of these private equity firms. And, and you can see they don't call it the practice of medicine, the corporate practice, as uh, Gretchen uh, pointed out. But um, when you change uh, the kinds of things they're changing, like the number of nurses uh, the practice has or what kind of equipment it has, uh, it does affect the uh, delivery of medical care. Absolutely no doubt about it. Yeah. Let's bring in Brian from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi there. Hi, Brian. Tell us your story. You're a physician, and you've actually been approached, your group's practice has been approached by private equity firms. Yeah, so I'm a urologist, and I'm in a group of about 20 doctors. We're scattered across the Bay Area. Um, And we've had no less than three different uh, cold approaches by private equity firms, just out of the blue, wanting to give us a presentation. And they're, they're pretty similar. Um, you know, they're all, they, they sound very attractive. It's that million to $2 million carrot up front, but it's what happens afterwards that was so concerning. And it's very similar to what you've been discussing. It's that, you know, physicians' incomes are then significantly less than they were before they went into the private equity deal. And there's no control over things like the ability to expand the practice. But probably more alarming is what um, we've been talking about, and that's control over the quality of care. Um, Because, yeah, sometimes it's a question of ordering more tests, but sometimes it's a question of ordering fewer tests, because unless the private equity firm um, has a, a stake in the ancillaries, like if the private equity firm doesn't own the CAT scanner, they're going to they're gonna discourage us from wanting to um, order more tests. And we'll get penalized if we spend too much money on diagnostic testing or referrals to other specialists, things like that. So um, it's the loss of autonomy and its impact on the ability to take care of people the way they need to be taken care of. Brian, you know, two things. Were you tempted to take the deal? 
and A, and B, when you bring up some of these concerns, obviously they know that you might have those concerns. What do they say? Well, first of all, our group, they should take the deal. And not surprisingly, the members of our group, the doctors in the group who were close to retirement, thought it was sweet, you know. <laughs> you know, I'll take right. my big check and ride off into the sunset in one or two years. But the people with a longer work horizon, we were very concerned about that. But again, they they offer us, as one of the previous callers mentioned, they would they offered us a stake of equity in the uh, in the company or the deal itself, mm. and so that theoretically, theoretically, as each deal. Um, was sold, packaged, and repackaged, and sold on every three to five years. We would get a bite of that apple too, as stake, as you know, equity holders. Um, but it it was just too theoretical, and the and all the other factors um, taken into consideration, it it just didn't seem like a it didn't smell right. So the majority of our group said no. Well, and and how did they respond to your concerns about control over the medical practice? Well, they they said absolutely not. They said, you know, no, we don't do that. <laughs> no, we don't do that. But, you know, if you look at the other practices in their group, what they have is they have these managers. They bring in their own management team, and they completely control the way the office is run. So, you know, they say, oh, well, if you need, you know, a new piece of equipment or, you know, if you feel like the staffing isn't right, we're totally flexible about that. Well, that's not been the experience of people that I've talked to who have signed up for these deals. God, Brian, thank you so, so much for sharing this experience. Before the show, I was saying, I really hope we get a doc who's had to face this decision. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. Great. Thank you. We're talking about the explosive growth of private equity investing in healthcare, what it means for doctors who you've been hearing, as well as what it means for patients. We're joined by Gretchen Morganson, senior financial reporter at NBC News Investigations, and her reporting can be found at NBCNews.com, of course. Richard Scheffler, professor of health economics at UC Berkeley, where he teaches in the schools of public health and public policy. And Mitchell Lewis Judge Lee, a practicing emergency physician and co-founder of Take Medicine Back, an advocacy group which seeks to remove private equity from health care. And of course, we do want to hear from you. What questions do you have about private equity in this space? Patients, have you noticed changes to your health care after a change in ownership? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786, or all the social media, the emails, forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and we're, of course, talking about private equity and healthcare with Gretchen Morganson of NBC News Investigations, Richard Scheffler of UC Berkeley, and a practicing emergency physician, Mitchell Lee. I, Gretchen Morganson, I want to know a little bit about our local situation here in California. Is it any different here? You know, you might think the California state government would have, you know, put some rules in place that might add, you know, extra protections. Or are we just kind of like everywhere else in the country? You know, California does have um, a reputation for being more aggressive on these kinds of issues. And so I think people do look to California for leading the way on some of this. Um, There has been an interesting lawsuit uh, filed late last month um, against one of the um, emergency medicine takeovers of a hospital system. So I think that that lawsuit, um, it's actually going to bring some much needed focus on the situation. I also think that it's worth reminding your listeners that the whole surprise medical billing Mm -hmm. issue really was in the emergency room arena, really was an issue that was private equity related. So can you gloss what happened? Like, yeah, how did that how did that happen? Yeah. So what happens is when you go to an emergency room, of course, you're in an emergency. You're not thinking about whether you can afford it. You're not thinking about whether it is in network or not in network. But in many cases, people who go to their emergency rooms believe that it's if their hospital is in their healthcare insurance network, that they will then be covered. Well, what happened was that when some of these private equity entities took over the um, emergency room operations, that it became out of network or they started charging out of network rates. And this just became a cause celeb and an enormous outrage, which actually had bipartisan support to get rid of this problem, which you know how hard it is nowadays to have bipartisan support of anything. So that's just how dreadful this situation was. But, you know, let's not forget that that was really an effort by the private equity firms to increase profits in emergency room operations. Yeah. Uh, One quick question from Pat, one of our listeners. How does a patient find out, Gretchen, if their doctor group is owned by a private equity firm? This is such a good question, and it really is tricky. Okay, so I'm an investigative reporter, and even I sometimes can't find out who owns what. You really have to go into incorporation records sometimes to find out who is really behind the LLC who is behind the professional association. It's not easy. They don't advertise that they are in these operations at all because they don't really um, want people necessarily to know. They want you to think that you're going to your old favorite doctor that you've relied on for years. They don't really want you to know there's been a financial transaction which might change that doctor's view of how to treat you. 
So it's really hidden. And this is what private equity does in all of their arenas, which is, you know, operate sort of in secrecy. They, um, even for their investors, they don't always tell them what they're buying and when and what they're paying. So this is a traditional approach, but it's very difficult to find out. You do have to dig in. You can ask, you can call up the doctor, say, who owns you? I want to know. That might be the most direct way. (laughs) Let's bring in Yusra from Palo Alto. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I just really wanted to thank, can you hear me? Oh, yes, go ahead. Okay, great. Uh, I, I'm a practicing physician in Palo Alto, and I just really wanted to thank you all for this amazing uh, show today. It couldn't be more timely. Um, we, I'm, I'm one of the very rare practicing independent physicians in the Bay Area. Unfortunately, a lot of uh, private, um, a lot of primary care doctors are owned in California by private healthcare. Um, firms and it's really disheartening to see how doctors are separated from their patients by having multiple people answer the phone before the doctor can actually um, be able to interact with their patients. So um, in my practice, um, as I said, you know, uh, I care for uh, primarily elderly population and uh, Medicare is one of those uh, very uh, uh, seldom insurances that actually provide uh, direct patient care. A lot of times, um, um, uh, sorry, I'm just going to go back to what I wanted to say in my original point, which is essentially that there is a bill in California today called AB 1400, which is a single payer health care bill being fought heavily by um, the private equity uh, health insurance companies um, to try and um, discourage people from voting yes on this bill. The bill is actually going to be presented uh, by the assembly for a vote today, and we need a two-third majority to pass the bill in California. The reality of today's um, medical care is that there is a strong push to privatize Medicare and sell it to these private equity uh, firms so that they can run Medicare the way um, they think they should run it. And unfortunately, that's going to create a huge um, um, backlog of care to patients, Uh, not to mention the fact that under private, and I appreciate most of the speakers that came before me because they really brought an amazing point about, you know, the relationships that change once doctors are part of these firms. Mm-hmm. Doctors are no longer have the autonomy of practice. Um, this is something I really enjoy, and I can see myself continuing in a private practice for another 20, 30 years because I do not have someone dictating on me yeah. whether I need to essentially, like, you know, check box all these, you know, to min- to meet their um, policies, you know, that they, which to me is absolutely yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Hey, Yusra, thank you so much for, for sharing that and for introducing us into AB uh, 1400. Dr. Uh, Lee, I'd love to hear from you. How do you feel about, you know, the kind of the big changes in healthcare that could maybe, you know, uh, change some of the structural conditions that allow private equity to get such a foothold like uh, AB 1400, a single payer bill? Um, well, what the previous caller brought up as well is I, I think there's from a big picture, um, corporate abuses have been going on for decades. And this was really brought to my attention uh, once I got a little bit outspoken and was contacted by leadership of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, which is an offshoot of our largest specialty association, which is the American College of Emergency Physicians, 
but which really is integral in driving a lot of this corporatization to this day. So AEM actually started as a completely separate group. What concerns me, I suppose, is, is you know, does single payer actually, does it help? I mean, it, it's going to help um, with access in general, but Medicare, there's a lot of Medicare fraud going on right now. And I fear that even if there's a single payer system, the corporations will still find a way to, uh, you know, to abuse it. And that's kind of uh, my main concern there. Yeah. Let's uh, get a question from one of our listeners named uh, Julia, who asked, and, and maybe Professor Scheffler, you could take this one. When the private equity firms flip the doctor's offices, like after, you know, they're trying to get out of their investment, who buys them? Oh, <laughs> Uh, who buys them? Uh, other investors, pension uh, funds and the like, uh, and uh, other private equity firms buy them for different investors. So uh, lots of, uh, it's kind of a, a game where the practice gets sold and resold to uh, the different buyers and then rolled up. And some of these practices, you know, start with buying one practice, and then uh, 10 years later, you'll see that they, uh, they own thousands and thousands of physicians, uh, each one along the line, either bought up by money coming from uh, pension funds or other private equity firms or other investors. It's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a potpourri. But uh, while I have the floor, I wanted to agree with uh, Gretchen, you know, this uh, no surprise bill act in Congress uh, was a bipartisan uh, bill passed. <laughs> uh, and it basically was to deal with the private equity um, uh, purchases and uh, what it did to the bill if you were outside the network. Specifically, this bill was passed to deal with private equity. In California, the attorney general has a role or could have a role in in uh, approving or modifying the purchase of uh, private equity uh, in healthcare. Um, uh, there is a, a bill in uh, Sacramento, uh, 1132, SB 1132, which I think is the number uh, in Assemblyman Woods uh, Committee that addresses uh, a lot of issues uh, dealing with market concentration and the like, but it does also address uh, private equity and uh, expands the role of the attorney general uh, in evaluating and approving these purchases. So again, uh, Gretchen was spot on. California is in the forefront of this uh, and it has been before. Uh, because our previous two attorney generals, of course, are now Secretary of Health and, and Vice President, and they were both very, very active in the healthcare sector. Mm-hmm. You know, Linda writes, uh, Professor Scheffler, I wanted to keep going on this. How is private equity acquisition different from being bought by a healthcare organization? For example, Stanford Healthcare has expanded into the East Bay. If you live over here, you've definitely seen that, and acquired a number of practices that I go to. My insurance still covers these doctors. I've been delighted with everything, and I have access to Stanford University if I need it. Linda adds, I am hoping that this is a different animal from what you were talking about. Uh, is it Professor Scheffler? Yes, in many ways it is. So the Stanford has bought up a lot of physician practices. The same thing with uh, UCSF and other large hospital systems. And uh, 
Uh, on the positive side, uh, this does give you access to those hospitals. And the notion is that these physicians now uh, will be integrated into Stanford or UCSF. And we know that integrated care, hospital care, and, and, and uh, care from private physicians working together uh, produces the best outcomes. The downside of it is as soon as the practice is bought by Stanford uh, or UCSF, the next day you call up after it's purchased and they say Stanford Healthcare System or UCSF, and you come in and they bill, the price goes significantly up because they're allowed to bill prices that also include some of the costs of the hospital. So overnight, the bill for the same service can go up 20, 30%. A lot of this, of course, depends on your insurance coverage, whether it's Medicare and coverage. But what we know from very good and rigorous academic studies is that the prices go up uh, significantly. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Gretchen Morganson, you know, you've been covering finance for a long time. We, the private equity guys, they you know, manage the money, they manage the assets, but there's a bigger pool of money that sits behind them that's actually providing the capital to do these things. Can you tell us about the role of pension funds and that other, you know, the kind of giant pool of money out there? Yeah, this is so, you know, integral and it's such an important issue to bring up. Okay, so pension funds, public pension funds, CalPERS, huge investor in private equity. And CalPERS, as you know, leads the way. So whatever CalPERS does, many other pensions decide they will follow. So CalPERS has been all in on private equity. And so my question always is, okay, I understand that you need to generate returns in your investments that are enough to satisfy the um, requirements, your obligations as a pension and your healthcare obligations as a pension. However, why would you own something that is actually driving up the costs of your healthcare? Hmm. Why would you own and why would you decide to take a stake in an investment vehicle that actually fires workers more often than hires workers? Why, you know, so there's this disconnect between Mm -hmm. what these companies actually wind up doing, what private equity winds up doing to the worker, to the cost of healthcare. There's a disconnect between that and the pensions that are investing with them. I, it's, it's a mystery to me. Want to bring in one last call, and I'm sorry we're not going to get to all the calls uh, today. Robert from San Mateo, welcome. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm an ER doc, and I, I think the problem with private equity is deeper than most people even have any idea of. In that, private equity companies hire other companies as consultants to run the practices, so that we, as an ER, um, as an ER practice in San Mateo. We're forced basically to utilize the Toyota model of getting patients in and out. It became a, a uh, assembly line mm-hmm. so that 
what once was a private, personal, doctor-patient relationship that would take the time it needed to care for the patient now was every single moment that was spent in the ER by the doctor and the patient was under scrutiny. Um, and you would be, at the end of a month, charted. You would see the graph of how much time you had spent with each patient, what tests you had bought, you had ordered. And, uh, and if you had not lived up to those very few precious moments of getting them in and out, you were, you were scorned. Uh, and that, that was a terrible thing for the patients and uh, and for the doctors, I can assure you. Robert, you know, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to leave and go to a different practice? Like, what are your options? No, you can only fight back internally. I mean, it's so rampant. It's all over. These these consultant companies are everywhere so that just by leaving a practice, um, you know, you can, the thing you have to do is raise your voice and not spend, and not let that take over your particular practice. It's, it's, a, it's a slog, and it's a fight, and uh, I'm afraid that a lot of doctors have indeed capitulated to it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Robert. You know, Dr. Lee, you know, why aren't more doctors raising their voices, as Robert in, in San Mateo was saying? They, they need to. Yeah, thanks. Can you still hear me? Yep. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I'm really impressed that the last caller called in, because this is really gets to the heart of the problem. Uh, physicians are systematically disempowered from speaking out. Um, you know, I believe that do no harm really means do no financial harm as well. And team health is one of those groups that is very well known for suing patients and garnishing the wages of the patients that we see. So to know that and being a doctor, but also knowing you're several hundred thousands of dollars in debt, have a family, uh, you're reliant on that job. And when these groups take over so aggressively, which is sort of the model behind private equity, you don't have any other options to leave. So this results in what we would term moral injury, which was originally a uh, military term, but where we are forced to repeatedly transgress our deeply held ethical beliefs on a regular basis. The companies build this in so that we they bypass due process laws or maybe even misclassify us as 1099 so that we can be let go in a, in a heartbeat if we say anything wrong. So I think this is um, what we're seeing right now is I have physicians talk to me on the on the daily who say, thank you for speaking out, but I just can't do it right now. Yeah. Thanks so much, Mitchell. Uh, we've been talking about the explosive growth of private equity investing in healthcare and what it means for patients. We've been joined by Gretchen Morganson, a senior financial reporter at NBC News Investigations. Thank you, Gretchen. Anytime. I'm happy to be here. It's a great <laughs> panel. Thank you. Dr. Scheffler, uh, uh, Professor Scheffler, uh, Professor of Health Economics at UC Berkeley. Thank you, Professor Scheffler. Thank you. Let's do it again yeah. soon. And Dr. Lee, co-founder of Take Medicine Back. Thank you so much, Dr. Lee. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This has been Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.